Asshole Court is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time, especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. Religious cults are like the train wreck of religion. They draw attention from the public and you can't take your eyes off it once the end is near. Most of the time, the cult leader is one that's remembered and not the innocent people that are brainwashed and ultimately give their lives for the leader's beliefs or cause. In this show's subject, Jim Jones was no different. Jones looked like a bad guy in a 70s movie with his patented dark glasses, buttoned up shirts, and plaid jackets. And the fact of the matter is, Jones was a bad guy. From a young age, he took a keen interest in religion and how it influenced people's lives. He studied others who accomplished what he was looking for, total power and influence over a group of people. Figures such as Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, and Karl Marx. You know, the real shitbags of human history. Jones led a group of followers to the faraway land of Guyana, where he promised utopia for those that came with him. What wound up happening is one of the worst tragedies in American history. Was Jim Jones just a power-hungry freak who wanted to manipulate those around him? What was his basis for doing what he did, and where did the crazy shit come from? Was it really Kool-Aid that they used to carry out the madness of a mass suicide at Jonestown? We'll examine that and a whole lot more in this cult classic episode of Asshole Court. Alright guys, what do you know about Jim Jones and what are you going to go with for his pre-show score? Alright, well I'm going to go pretty high on him. I don't know a lot about him personally, but I mean of course everybody's heard the don't drink the Kool-Aid. Yep. You know, so I'm going to score him pretty high off the rip because I have heard about that incident down in Guyana. Sure. And you know, I know that a lot of people died down there. I don't know the exact number, but I know we're up into the multiple hundreds. So... Without really knowing too much about him, but just knowing that, my pre-show asshole score for Jim Jones is going to be an 8.0 off the rip. Okay. All right. 8.0 for Buddy. I'm sort of in the same boat because I had that, uh, had the Jonestown massacre not occurred, I wouldn't know anything about this guy. Most There are cults out there everywhere. Most of them don't end in this sort of mass suicide slash murder. So, I mean, you have to start real high on this guy. The only thing you know about him right off the rip is that uh, hundreds of deaths are attributed directly to him. I'll give him a nine to start. All right. 9.0 for Mikey. I know, like you said, buddy, we've all heard the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid. And I found out where it came from years ago when I read about Jonestown. And I have a habit of going down some weird rabbit holes and then immediately Googling it and taking myself uh, down some weird trails. The guy was definitely a weirdo. And just like all the other cult leaders with the number of people that died in his care, I'm also going pretty high. My pre-show score was also an 8.0. Okay. So with an 8.0 from Buddy, an 8.0 from Randy, and a 9.0 from Mikey, 
Jim Jones' pre-show asshole score is an 8.3 repeating. All right. 8.3. You guys ready? Indeed. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. James Warren Jones was born on May 13th, 1931 in Crete, Indiana to James Thurman Jones, a World War I veteran, and Lynetta Putnam. As the Great Depression crippled the economy of the United States, the Jones family were no exception. And when Jim was just three years old, his family had to move out of their home and into a glorified shack without plumbing in Lynn, Indiana. Mm. Ooh. living in a shack. In Indiana in the wintertime. Ooh. Now, here's a real quick question. I know I don't want to get off topic here, but you were born and your name is James or Warren. You get to choose. Who do you, which, which name do you choose? Would you rather be a James or a Warren? Nowadays, I'd go with Warren, but probably back then it was James. Yeah. yeah. I'd probably go with James as well. I would go with There's a lot Warren. of nicknames you could go with with James. Jimmy, Jimbo, Warren Jimbo. J. Yeah. I'd you know. go with Warren just to honor my man, Warren, Warren Moon. G. Warren. <laughs> <laughs> I think I say Warren G. Harding. I was like, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic fellow, that guy. <laughs> Jones was largely left to himself as his mother was often working, and it was said that his father had little interest in him. Jones's father was a distant, a sickly war veteran who, in his son's eyes, contributed little to the world around him. His mother, Lynetta, was eccentric, intense, and grandiose. Unlike others in her family, Jones's mother had attended college and was observed by townsfolk wearing factory coveralls and smoking cigarettes. That's pretty impressive to have gone to college. In uh, the 30s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. With his father's reluctance to stray from his perch near the family radio and his mother's absence from the home for an extended shift at the factory, the young Jim Jones seems to have fallen prey to a syndrome termed a nurture failure. Hmm. Child undergoes nurture failure when parents and/or adult caregivers are able or unwilling to provide the guidance and structure necessary for the child's assimilation into the wider community. This theory states that the neglected child seeks to mask the pain of abandonment by reversing the nurture role scenario. So the child, in turning away from the shortcomings of those who are supposed to nurture him, appoints himself as the nurturer. Huh. Often reinterpreting and elaborating the strategies and styles of nurturing observed in the adults closest to him. So you're telling me if I stop paying my son any attention, he might start paying the bills. I don't know if I did that. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you try that? Yeah. yeah. Little Jim, having no strong nurturing bond with his overworked mother, carried on her nurtured love to an extreme. And we'll get into this story shortly. For years, one of his neighbors often took him to visit her church. Jones began his own religious quest around the age of 10 years old. He visited churches in the small town of Lynn and befriended a Pentecostal minister for a time. An observant child, Jones began taking what he learned at these different houses of worship and started preaching to other children in the community. He also became an avid reader who studied, as mentioned, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Gandhi, and Hitler. So this dude, this kid is like uh, nine years old. And he's reading like Das Capital. Yeah, I mean, ten years old. Yeah, 10, he said, years "I old. check this out. Here's what I learned, y'all. First of all, I can handle snakes, and they bite me. The Lord protects me. Two, he said, workers of the world unite. Okay, he said, capital is a poison upon the labor, the labor unions." <laughs> He was a strong student, especially in public speaking, but he had a few friends. You think? Ah, weird. Some 12-year-old reading Communist Manifesto. In the 40s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck. His overpowering religious zest turned off some, and he, in turn, disliked many typical teenage boy activities, such as sports 
and objected to what he believed to be sinful behavior, such as dancing or drinking. Oh, oh man, Elvis yeah. was the devil. I'm telling you. So hey, he- Jim, do you want to go to the dance? That's devil shit. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't like playing sports, drinking, or dancing, so I seriously doubt that I would have hung out with his weird no, ass either. Man. Yeah, no, he, he, he was a friend of books, not of people. Yeah. Yep. He gathered around him a made-up congregation of chickens, cats, <laughs> dogs, snakes, and other creatures, which he can find in makeshift pens in the family barn. A captive audience, for real. Absolutely. <laughs> Sequestered in the barn's loft, Jones lit candles, retrieved boxfuls of discarded bouquets from trash bins, which he placed on a primitive altar and preached to the animals. God a little damn, seance dude. going on. You Brother, know? that is making my skin crawl uh-huh. right now. Yeah. Weird, isn't it? Ha yeah. ha! <laughs> it'd be awesome if it was in the 80s he had like a Casio organ <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Drayson they're like cranking something out Boo, do, 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 do. okay we're going to talk today about Jesus dogs and cats <laughs> Jim was amazingly effective at coaxing the neighborhood children up the ladder and into his barn slash stable slash church where the diminutive preacher would convince them that he knew all of the sins they had committed Mm. On some occasions, the presiding child held funeral services for animals that had died. That's cool. Oh, yeah. They That's showed nice that in enough. the movie, and what? one of the girls was like, I got to go home. Mama says it's time to eat. And he's like, shut up. You're going to stay here until we're done with the funeral. Man. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. We're going to dive a little bit into a little another story like that. Well, and also when he's telling them all their sins, it's pretty easy because they're like 12 and 13. He's like, you've touched yourself. And Damn you've it. touched yourself. And you've touched yourself. And they're like, how does he know this shit, man? <laughs> he must be a worker from God. God doesn't like it when you touch yourselves. <laughs> One onlooker noticed that a pet cat over whom little Jimmy was officiating had been killed by Jones himself earlier in the day. Oh, oh. that went a dark turn. Yeah. We need a funeral today to restore order around here. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect much out of Jim Jones with the whole massacre thing, but killing cats. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. Some of his behavior could be telling about Jim Jones's early views on suicide. First, a reminder that Jones's tenderness toward and sympathy for the downtrodden had a cruel counterpart. Pets underwent mutilations and neighborhood boys were brutalized during these barn church sessions. The same charismatic youth who felt guilt over a pet dog's death tortured and starved his other pets. The only factor that staved off unrelenting and deep-seated desire to commit suicide was his discovery of dependence that he could nurture. So you kind of see the foreshadowing of his later life. Yeah. He yeah. likes the feeling of being able to power and control and quote unquote take care of people or things, right. you know. And they Create need him, madness though. and then restore order almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So he is basically saying that like he had suicidal ideations but he stopped short because he did enjoy his role in that place. So As he, the nurturer. If right. he had just killed himself, he could have done us all a big thing. Absolutely. Oh yeah. His childhood friend, a guy named Don Foreman, experienced this on a number of occasions, as when Jones locked him and another child in the barn loft. Jones maintained this sadism throughout his entire life, forcing congregants to stand for hours, straining them to their breaking point, though he claimed it was for their own good. Jones railed against his followers as dummies and stupid, <laughs> even as he pleaded with them to start giving a fuck for the divine socialism oh, that would man. deliver them. Jesus. Yeah. Dude, but honestly, you know, the thing with his friend, that's not all that weird because remember that time that you guys locked me in the trunk of the car? He took you to school? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's about to take a twist. So Don Foreman, on another occasion, was asked by Jones to continue to speak with him in his living room past little Donnie's curfew. When Foreman refused, 
thus perhaps failing to receive Jones's nurturing, Jim brandished his father's gun and shot at the fleeing man as he ran away. Oh. Jesus. Yep. He said, that'll change your mind. He said, all right, you're right. I'll be back tomorrow. (laughs) See you then. It was exciting, Jim. Another tidbit that would probably fuck with you as a kid was the fact that Jones and a childhood friend both claimed his father was associated with the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, I heard about this. Which had become very popular in the Depression area of Indiana. It's very true. And that's, uh, I think, we talked about the other night. Indiana had the highest per capita Klan membership in the entire country. Did it yeah. start off in Indiana? No, it actually Tennessee, it started right? off in Tennessee, and then the actual revival that occurred in 1915 started in Stone Mountain. Oh wow! Yeah, and but Indiana, which is funny because I, I always have this discussion with people when they talk about the South is inherently racist and all that, and I'm like, racism is everywhere, it's specifically in rural areas, generally speaking. But Indiana, like I said, was the number one per capita Klan membership uh, holder in the 20s. The governor of Indiana at one point was a well-known Klan member. So, yeah, it's not surprising. All of this is very true. Yeah. Jones recounted how he and his father argued on the issue of race and how he did not speak to his father for many, many years after he refused to allow one of Jones's black friends into the house. Jones's parents separated in the mid-40s, and Jones relocated with his mother to Richmond, Indiana. He worked at a hospital as an orderly where he met a lady named Marceline Baldwin, an older nursing student. After graduating early and with honors from Richmond High School in December 1948, Jones started at Indiana University the following January. I bet the Hoosiers are real proud of that I was about to say, man, him and Bobby Knight. (laughs) (laughs) He married Marceline after his first semester on June 12, 1949, and they relocated to Bloomington, Indiana. Okay. He attended Indiana University Bloomington, where he was impressed with a speech given by Eleanor Roosevelt about the plight of African Americans. In 1951, the couple relocated to Indianapolis. Big city. Yeah. The then 20-year-old Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. He became flustered. Tough one, it's a tough one in the 50s, man. I'm <laughs> trying to tell you. Yeah. He became flustered with the harassment during the McCarthy hearings, particularly regarding an event for which he attended with his mother focused on Paul Robeson, after which she was harassed by the FBI in front of her coworkers for attending. Yeah. He also became frustrated with the persecution of open and accused communists in the United States, especially during the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Yep. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were American citizens who were convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. The couple were accused of providing top secret information about radar, sonar, jet propulsion engines, and valuable nuclear weapon designs. And at that time, the United States was the only country in the world with nuclear weapons. Convicted of espionage in 1951, they were executed by the federal government of the United States in 1953. That's right. Jeez. Yeah, if you were an open communist in the 50s, especially at that time, it, you had about the same popularity as a member of NAMBLA does now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Around this time, Jones began to ponder the question, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. Jones decided that he was entering the ministry in 1952. He was surprised when a Methodist district superintendent helped him get a start in the church, even though he knew Jones to be a communist. He got a job as a student pastor at the Somerset Methodist Church in a poor, predominantly white neighborhood in Indianapolis. Around this time, Jones witnessed a faith healing service at Seventh-day Baptist Church. The only thing I know about the Seventh-day Adventists is that they go to church on Saturday. Yeah, they're a death cult, essentially, and uh, if any of our listeners disagree with me, then uh, you're probably a member. but yeah. <laughs> So there's Seventh-day Adventists that worship the Lord on the sixth day? That's what I'm gathering. I'm guessing maybe the seventh day is like 
verbatim the day of rest and they don't go to church that day, but the, I just know they go to church on Saturdays. They are all about the apocalypse and the Branch Davidians uh, were yeah. an offshoot oh, yeah. of the Seventh-day Adventists. Yep. Oh, okay. So they're okay, gotcha. hardcore, dude, but they, everything is, is geared towards the end times pretty yep. much. They're a death cult. <laughs> he observed that it attracted people and their money and he concluded that he could accomplish his social goals with financial resources from such services. By the following year, Jones is making a reputation for himself in the state as a healer and an evangelist. He was interested in holding racially integrated services, but this interest was not shared by his church. And at the time, that is not a shocker at They're all. They're like, yeah. we'd like to see you do the surgical healing with your hands, but I don't know about bringing black people in here now. That's just a step too far. He said, take that chicken gizzard, tear it out of my guts. <laughs> Jones organized a mammoth religious convention to take place June 11th through 15th, 1956 in Cato Tabernacle. He needed a well-known religious figure to draw the crowds. So he arranged to share the pulpit with Reverend William M. Branham, a healing evangelist and religious author who was highly revered. After the successful convention, Jones had garnered enough attention and following to begin his own church. His new church had various names till it be finally became the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. Yeah. That is a fucking mouthful. It yeah. is. And then he also folded that Marxism in there. It's the People's, like the People's Republic. Yeah. That's right. The Democratic People's Republic of Jesus. In the movie, they show him getting kicked out of his old church, and then they show him basically going into just like the worst part of the city. Yeah. And he goes and stands up on like, he like looks around, sees a building, looks like it could be a church. Mm -hmm. And he goes and he stands up on the steps, and then all of a sudden, a lot of people start circling around him like they're going to, you know, like beat him up or yeah. something. And he's like, will y'all pray with me? And they're like, what? Wait a second. And he's like, I just want to say that we're all the same color in God's eyes. Black, white, brown. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Red, orange. And then like everybody's like cheering for him. Like, yeah, yeah! white guy. And he's not calling us the N word. Tell us to leave. <laughs> and, then they, and then he's like, I'm starting a church and all y'all are welcome. They're like, yeah. Like basically like carrying him on his shoulders. Yeah, dude. The church stood out for its multiracial membership, which was quite revolutionary during a time of racial segregation. To help build his following, he bought time on local AM radio stations to air his sermons. To raise money, he imported monkeys and sold them door to door as pets. What no fuck? shit, that is not a joke. In the movie, they play that as uh, Randy Quaid as a um, pet shop as owner. Monkey wait, wait, wait. Yeah. There's a Jim Jones movie with Randy Quaid in it, and I <laughs> yes. haven't seen it. <laughs> yes, it is a very young Randy Quaid. Actually, in the movie, it's got Randy Quaid, LeVar Burton, James Earl Jones. Wow. Uh, there's, it's, you know, pretty... it's like Roots meets its uh, Vegas Vacation or something like it that. It is. <laughs> but I honestly want to see... <laughs> Cousin, <laughs> Cousin Eddie. Cousin like, I own this Coon monkey Kente, shop. Man. Yeah, I, uh, I honestly would love to see when they're having the meeting. They're like, we need to raise money somehow. Should we get some chocolate bars to sell? Or, I don't know, donuts? Yeah, yeah like vinyl siding or windows, yeah. you know. Monkeys. I got an idea. <laughs> and then to boot, Randy Quaid turns out to be his accountant, too, because he's a tax person beforehand that okay. inherited the pet shop from his uncle. That's kind of an odd story. but It is. You know. I love it. I'm going to yeah. watch Randy Quaid and Jim Jones <laughs> this weekend. In 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission. Jones ignored Boswell's advice to keep a low profile. However, finding new outlets for his views on local radio and television programs showed success. The mayor and the other commissioners asked him to chill out and not be outspoken, but he resisted. He was wildly cheered at a meeting of the NAACP and Urban League when he yelled from his audience to be more militant and then climaxed with, Let my people go. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, no shit. Hey, you read the room. Yeah. 
During this time, Jones also helped to racially integrate churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the Indianapolis Police Department, a theater, an amusement park, and the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. Yeah. See, and that's the thing, too. Like, it's tough because the first thing you know about Jim Jones ever is Jonestown. It's Jonestown. First thing you think of. And then when I remember, like, hearing this other stuff and you're like, wow, dude, like, See, this is really solid stuff dude, on the for front the black lines community. of it. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and like we were talking about earlier, like it's it. You have to be a brave person. You have to be a brave person. You know, regardless of, of whatever you think. I think personally, it was like pathological for him to be rebellious. And so, in the late '40s and the '50s, when being a communist was totally antisocial, and in the late '50s and the '60s, when you're for civil rights and stuff like that, is also being antisocial to the norm. But regardless of what his true intent was, like the dude got a lot done. You know, and there's also something to say about his dad, you know, keeping his friend out of the house mm-hmm. when he was younger. So it yeah. could even just stem from him being rebellious against his dad. It could be. And it could be very sincere. Yeah, absolutely. Swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families and Jones walked through the neighborhood comforting local black people and counseling white families not to move. He set up sting operations to catch restaurants refusing to serve black customers and wrote to American Nazi leaders and then passed their responses to the media. Ooh. He was accidentally placed in the black ward of a hospital after a collapse in 1961, and he refused to be moved. He began to make the beds and empty the bedpans of black patients. Political pressures resulting from Jones's action caused hospital officials to desegregate the wards. Oh, wow. Yeah. So again, See, another... imagine this guy gets hit yeah. by a bus when he leaves the hospital. He's a fucking saint. Right. Yeah. Right. 100 percent. He's up there. He's, he's a like, civil rights leader. Yeah. And yep. they even show it in the movie. And I don't know if this happened in real life, but he shows up at a movie theater and it's like, hey, I want to buy 350 tickets and I've got the cash all right here. And the manager comes out. He's like, for 350 tickets, I'll, you know, dance up on stage myself. Yeah, he's I'll like, get cool. Butt naked. <laughs> and he's like, well, here's the money. He's like, here's the tickets. And then he's like, all right, everybody, come on. And it's like, all of a sudden, just this parade of black people come walking up. The manager's like, you know that my segregated seats only fit 50 and you want 350. And he's like, well, guess what? We're going to do this right now. Yeah. And just walks everybody in. And uh, he said, you're about to catch 350 ass whippings. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, there's another movie theater story about Jim Jones we'll get into in a little bit. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Instead of just whipping out your phone and pushing random buttons in that awkward situation, make sure you're subscribed to our channel on your favorite podcast platform. You don't want to miss a new show. Now, back to the action. Around this time, Jim and Marceline started their family, and it was definitely a cutting-edge family for that time. Jones and his wife adopted several non-white children. He referred to the household as his rainbow family. The couple adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Suzanne, and Stephanie. And he was encouraging Temple members to adopt orphans from the war-ravaged Korea. In 1954, he and his wife also adopted Agnes, who was part Native American. Suzanne was adopted at age six in 1959. In June of 1959, the couple had their only biological child, whom they named Stephen Gandhi. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Exactly. In 1961, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child. Wow. They also adopted a son who was white named Tim. Tim's birth mother was a member of the People's Temple Church. Sometime in the early 1960s, Jones came across an Esquire article that listed the nine safe places in the world in event of a nuclear catastrophe. Okay. One of those cities cited was Eureka, California which Esquire said that the city escapes damages in the war games attack because it is west of the Sierras 
and upwind from every target in the United States. Jones persuaded his congregation that they needed to leave for California and even warned of a nuclear attack that would happen on July 15th, 1967. That didn't happen, obviously. No. Oh, wow. That, that's all the right. thing. These guys got to learn to not get so specific with the dates. Telling you, all the people that throw the dates out there always have to backtrack and be like, yes. well, I might have read that wrong. Yeah. You know? So you don't throw that shit out in the song either because then you're listening to it like 1992. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now you're like, yeah. You know, 28 right. years ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> More than 100 church members accompanied Jones to California, where they lived in the remote small towns of Ukiah and Redwood Valley. Within five years of moving to California, the temple experienced a period of exponential growth and opened branches in cities including San Fernando, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. He eventually moved the temple's headquarters to San Francisco, which was both a major center for radical protest and both Jones and the temple became influential in San Francisco politics, mm-hmm. culminating in the temple's instrumental role in George Moscone's mayoral victory in 1975. That's a big deal. Yeah. Moscone subsequently appointed Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Commission. Jones was able to gain contact with prominent politicians at the local and national level. For example, he and Moscone met privately with vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale on his campaign plane days before the 1976 election, leading Mondale to publicly praise the temple. First Lady Rosalind Carter also met with Jones on multiple occasions, corresponded with him about Cuba, and spoke with him at the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters, where he received a louder applause than she did. I've seen the picture of Rosalind Carter with Jim Jones, and you just, you feel sorry for the lady. You're like, (laughs) you didn't know, dude. You didn't know. Same thing with Walter Mondale. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. so why you get to hang out, be vice president, meet Jim Jones, and then 84, get your fucking ass handed to you in like the biggest election landslide in U.S. history, I think. Wow. It's because of Jim Jones. He got to the election, at least. That's it's pretty true. Big, pretty we big know big. him, but that's what you know him for. It's like knowing the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, What do you know true. them for? The four <laughs> Super Bowl losses yeah. in a row? Jones hosted local political figures at his San Francisco apartment for discussions. He spoke with publisher Carlton Goodlett of the San Francisco Sun Reporter about his remorse over not being able to travel to socialist countries such as the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, speculating that he could become the chief dairyman of the USSR. What's the mil- a dairyman? The milkman, oh, motherfucker. A legit milkman. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was like some weird title or something like that, like a boatswain's mate. No, it's a, it's it's a like, milk guy. I'll be the milkman for the Soviets. Head milkman, head, motherfucker. Head milkman. <laughs> Milk Boss. That's a new show on TLC. HMIC. <laughs> yeah. Head milkman in charge. His criticisms led to increased tensions with the Nation of Islam. So Jones spoke at a huge rally in the Los Angeles Convention Center that was attended by many of his closest political acquaintances, hoping to close the rift between the two groups. Jones also forged alliances with key columnists and others at the San Francisco Chronicle and other press outlets. Although the move to San Francisco also brought increased media scrutiny. And this is what will begin to have Jones looking to make another move. So what was it about Jones's church and actions that had people looking deeper into the church and what was going on? Why would someone who was rubbing elbows with politicians, promoting desegregation, and preaching about changing people's lives be a target of an investigative report? Well, there was definitely a dark side to Jim Jones, and it wasn't just his communist favorite outlook on society. In December 1973... Jones was arrested in the restroom of a late-night movie theater that was known to be a hangout for gay men. He was cruising. Yep. Oh, man. We're talking Pee Wee Herman style? Well, George Michael style. Apparently, he approached an undercover agent with an erect penis in a provocative way. 
Well, how the else me- do you provoke someone? <laughs> oh, <laughs> man, no, that- someone with a with a penis. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine if that's your job? Like you've like been working all your life yeah. to be a part of the FBI. And you're like, all right, cool. I'm finally gonna get field work. What's my assignment? Yeah. Fuck. They're like, all you're right. getting prong work, Jerry. You <laughs> 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 guys on the prong work. Tony, <laughs> just the mental image I have of a guy with a boner just coming up to yeah. another guy like, hey. That's what I'm saying. There's no other way to approach somebody but hypersexually with a boner. <laughs> you know? You're pitching a tent walking up to somebody. <laughs> and you as, know? A, as a married man, our wives know this one where you're just kind of like, hey, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Look what I got today. <laughs> Oh, shit. Here comes two drink Randy again. (laughs) This incident threatened to bring down the People's Temple, and those who knew about it teamed up to prepare for possible backlash. While the lawyers worked to get the arrest sealed, Jim became more and more threatened and paranoid, convinced he would be exposed. (laughs) 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 Yeah, see what I did there? Yeah. To reduce the fallout, members of the church were told to invite local people from a homosexual church. But members of the predominantly gay church did not return after their first visit to the temple. He was determined to make People's Temple a more openly homosexual church to stop insiders and outsiders from turning against him in case his own homosexual arrest became public. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, you know. Invite everybody to the party. Yeah, yeah All the exactly. things you're into. Well, we're about to dive into like his mentality behind homosexuality and it's... It's a little twisted. Yeah, it which is. Which is not a shocker. Self-loathing sort of thing. So after the arrest, Jim told one of the members of the church, no more sex with strangers. I guess it was the <laughs> 60s, and that was definitely a thing. But, In San uh, Francisco, too. Yeah, if you have to verbalize that to a member of your church, uh, no more sex with strangers. I've got it. I figured it out. You know what's been driving me crazy? Randomly fucking dudes that I have met. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't feel great about it. People in my church don't seem to like it. So from this point forward, no more bonus. No strangers. more. No more. Everybody no more. cool with that? All right. All in favor, say aye. Aye. <laughs> all opposed? Nay. <laughs> That's you, Jim. You can't. <laughs> he was forced to find outlets for his sexuality within the church to avoid being destroyed. He used the preposterous notion that he had to relate to other men's homosexuality to reach them on their level, or he would propose to introduce men to their inner homosexuality. Mm. Although Jim was the one who was actually guilty, the arrest led to a spread of a new ideology that all men were latently homosexual except for him. <laughs> I swear to God. Jim he said, said it's not gay if I fuck you, Steve. <laughs> it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> That's it. That's George Costanza, though. Well, yeah, it is true, though. <laughs> Jim said that all of us were homosexuals. Joyce Houston, an ex Temple follower, said in the Jonestown documentary, everyone except him. He was the only heterosexual on the planet and that all women were lesbians and the guys were all gay. So anyone trying to show interest in sex was just compensating. Tim Carter, another ex-member, says that Jones hated romantic relationships within the People's Temple because they were seen as a threat to the cause and that the members should be focused on their work. He said, my wife Gloria and I were one of those couples who never really talked to each other about our true feelings about Jones. He says, or anything else, because we were afraid that one night we might get called on the carpet. A pastor, this is fucked up, a pastor in one of Jones's California churches was a guy named David Parker Wise. Wise wrote about an encounter with Jones in a paper archived in the San Diego State University files, which oddly enough had a lot of information about Jim Jones and his crew. Yeah, okay. SDSU, oh. yeah. He said, one night in Los Angeles, Jim sent for me to come to his room backstage. He was wearing a t-shirt with no pants, like women often wear for night shirts. Jim... <laughs> <laughs> 
Dress socks, too. Is that <laughs> but back then, what, tube socks? Yeah, the dressed black dress socks. He was with the boner out, just like in the bathroom when he got caught. Uh-huh. Jim often dressed in that manner to conceal the fact that he had no chest hair and a growing gut. <laughs> just as an odd get-up. I mean, no pants and a t-shirt. I envisioned, yeah, like a girl getting ready for totally. bed. And no chest hair, just like a girl. Yeah. Yeah. As I entered Jim's room, he reeked of cheap men's cologne, either brute or English leather. It's weird that he remembered the scents. <laughs> Man, a guy has a fucking panic attack every time he walks past like a Kmart scent station or whatever. <laughs> oh, shit. I just smelled Jim Jones. Well, PTSD. <laughs> here we go. He showed me his penis and said that the herpes sores and then were not open, that it would be okay if I uh, sucked him. Oh. I had never heard of herpes. I told him he should use his hand. He said... Your mouth would be softer. I answered, well, when I'm horny, I use my hand. He lowered his shirt and accepted the rejection. The next night, I heard he was asking for me again, so I drove to the Albertsons parking lot and slept all night in the car seat. Afterwards, when he said he had been looking for me and told him where I'd gone, he got the message. That's a pretty soft rejection, though. Hey, uh, yeah, uh, no, just just getting beat off in front of me, dude. I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah. Well, you know, that's uh, interestingly enough, I saw a quote from somebody and it was talking about, you know, all these people inside the cults and they were talking about your personal sense of self has been replaced by your cult self. And when you've been enveloped in a sphere of influence, all the aberrant behavior becomes normalized. So, you know, like, yeah, unfortunately, what you would normally say, hey, that's fucked up. After a while, you start to be like, oh, it's you know, true. Hey. Who knows how I'd act in that? You know what I mean? I may be like, well, they, they don't look like they're really open. The source seem <laughs> Yeah. Your herpes seem contained. Yeah, you know? right? It doesn't look like it hurts that much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God damn. So after hearing that story, you could see why it would be very contradictory to know that as part of his teachings, Jones discouraged sex and romantic relationships. But he himself had many mistresses and encounters, just like the one we heard about with some of his pastors. So as we discussed... Jones married Marceline Baldwin in 1949. He began his first known affair in 1968 with a woman named Carolyn Layton, with whom he was with until the end in Jonestown. Another woman he became close with was Maria Katsaris. Their relationship began in 1974, and she was also one of the mistresses with him up until his death. I know one of the mistresses that he was with, at least portrayed in the movie, she was the one that was one of the faith healers. That would come in and act, and she would have, like, crutches on or something like that, and he'd be like, you are healed, you can walk, and She was like a ringer, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. How do you believe in that shit when you're faking it? I don't know. I don't get it. The way that he explained it to her in the movie was, God has chosen me, and Mm. sometimes you got to prime the pump a little bit just to, you know. Man. Yeah. Well, I don't think I'll ever get in a cold. Yeah. (laughs) Smart move. Thanks. He also had many other mistresses during the 1970s, both before the move to Jonestown and while he was living in Jonestown. The book The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn states, Jones had occasional sex with male followers, but never as often as he did with women. It states that he was most likely bisexual, but his main physical and sexual attraction was towards women. So it definitely sounds like Jimmy swung both ways. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But to target and abuse those who looked up to him and practically worshipped him was just another example of his manipulation and abuse of power. Definitely. You know, they talk about that a little bit, how he was like, look, you can't have sex outside of the marriages Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And even later on at the compound in Guyana, he dissolved a lot of the marriages. 
He basically said, look, I don't care who's married or not mm-hmm. right now. We're starting from zero and yeah. I will tell you if you're married or not. And then y'all can stay together at that point. But he basically would like pick and choose the women that he wanted to have sex yeah. with. And you see this mentality a lot. Like you see it with David Koresh. Yep. You oh, know, certainly. Yep. I think like he thought that he was going to repopulate all the world with God's children yeah. or something like that. Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein style. <laughs> yes, yeah. pretty yeah. much. Yeah, That's pretty much. It's the old saying. Like everything is about sex except for sex because sex is about power, you know, but that's uh, he definitely did the devil's triangle with a chick and a dude. Oh, absolutely. There's no way that. But then he would end up throwing that back at the people later on. You know, Mm -hmm. there was one guy in the movie. It was LeVar Burton, actually. And Mm -hmm. when Jim Jones was like, I'm dissolving all marriages, LeVar was like, you can't do that. And that's because he had like picked his wife. Oh, yeah. You know, to come with him. And then, you know. Hey, wait a second. This isn't what I signed up for. And yeah. then Jim was like, well, you're a homosexual. And that's what your wife came to me for, was telling me all these homosexual <laughs> things that you had in your head. So she came to me. Oh, man. You know, and like, brutal. so he would like do stuff with them, but then throw it right back in their face, right in front of the whole congregation. Yeah. Master manipulator. Yeah, that's 100%. exactly right. Yeah. So with the increased media attention he was getting, as mentioned before, he was naturally getting more and more people interested in what he was preaching about and what his church was all about. In the fall of 1973, after critical newspaper articles by Lester Kinsolving and the defection of eight temple members, Jones and the temple's attorney prepared an immediate action contingency plan for responding to a police or media crackdown. The plan listed various options, including fleeing to Canada or to a Caribbean missionary post, such as Barbados or Trinidad. For its Caribbean missionary post, the temple quickly chose Guyana. The temple chose Guyana in part because of the group's own socialist politics, which were moving further to the left during the selection process. Former temple member Tim Carter stated that the reasons for choosing Guyana were in the temple's view a perceived dominance of racism and multinational corporations in the U.S. government. According to Carter, the temple concluded that Guyana, an English-speaking and socialist country with a predominantly indigenous population and with the government, including prominent black leaders, would afford black temple members a peaceful place to live. Later, Guyanese Prime Minister Forbes Burnham stated that Jones may have wanted to use cooperatives as the basis of the establishment of socialism and maybe his idea of setting up a commune meshed with that. Jones also thought that Guyana was small, poor, and independent enough for him to easily obtain influence and official protection. It's a pretty good analysis. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's another big piece here. Jones was skillful in presenting the Guyanese government the benefits of allowing People's Temple Agricultural Project, was the original name of Jonestown, mm-hmm. to settle within its borders. One of the main tactics was to speak with the advantages of their American presence near the Guyanese border of Venezuela. Oh. This idea seemed promising to the People's National Congress, who feared an attack from Venezuela. Very, oh, wow. very... Smart, tactically speaking. Yeah. You know what I mean, and I believe, didn't he get a deal worked out for the land for like dirt cheap? They don't talk about the price, but yeah, in 74, they traveled to Guyana um, and they negotiated a lease of over 3,800 acres of land in the jungle, about 150 miles west of Georgetown, which is the capital. One thing that they did show in the movie, and I don't know of the historical accuracy mm-hmm. of it, but Jim Jones is getting accosted by one of the locals there who's like maybe one of the head military guys or something. Mm -hmm. And he's like, look, you came over here to this place that really you can't farm. We've, you know, the The soil was shit. It was shit. And the nearest body of water was seven miles away. Yeah. And then to top it off, they planted everything on hills. So that way, when the first rain came down, it it brought everything, including the topsoil down. Well, if you're getting your farming advice from Cousin Eddie, it's not going to work out very well. Clark, I'll tell you what you ought to do. <laughs> Plant all these seeds up on that hill up top there, man. 
As 500 members began the construction of Jonestown, the temple encouraged more to relocate to the settlement. It was promoted as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. Do we know if these 500 people were people that came from the states or were there yep. like a mix of yep, both from states. the congregation of his churches? That's insane that he convinced that many people, people. That's what I'm saying. Move. I can't even convince myself to move. Yeah, yeah. I know. Like, <laughs> yeah. And especially like back in, what is this, like the 60s, 70s? 70s. 1974. Man, that's, I mean, say yeah, what you want. That's strong. impressive. Like, strong. It is. I think, but once you form that sort of bond and that like you feel like everybody's working towards a team effort, you just are like, it probably feels really nice where you're like, man, we're, now we're going to go. We're doing it's something. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be yeah. a farm paradise, dude. Jones purported to establish it as a model communist community, adding that the temple comprised the purest communists there are. He did not, however, permit members to leave Jonestown. In 1977, San Francisco Chronicle reporter Marshall Kilduff encountered resistance while trying to publish an expose, so he brought the story to New West magazine. The article talked about allegations by former temple members that were physically, emotionally, and sexually abused. This was the point where Jones seemingly knew he needed to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, they were showing when the people would arrive in to mm-hmm. the camp. Yeah. They were like, hey, we need your passports yep. and identification yep. so that way we can make it just go real smooth with the yeah. authorities here. But then he would just keep them, you know, oh, yeah. and what are you going to do at that point? Yeah, yeah you, you have you no have, passport. What do you, yeah, we can say, nah, I changed my mind, dude. And then he just chucks you out of the plane. Yeah. Pinochet style. You should put your phone away during dinner, but... Before you do, like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Now, enjoy that dinner and enjoy the show. Jones has started building Jonestown several years before the New West article was published. In 1974, Guyanese officials granted the temple permission to import certain items duty-free. Later payoffs helped safeguard shipments of firearms and drugs through the Guyanese customs. Wow. Wow. Religious scholar Mary McCormick Maga argues that Jones's authority decreased after he moved to the isolated commune because he was not needed for recruitment and he could not hide his drug addiction from rank and file members. So yeah. he was doing a bunch of drugs. Yeah. yeah. And drugging up a lot of the girls there, too, according to the movie. Yeah. In spite of the allegations prior to Jones's departure, he was still respected by some for setting up a racially mixed church, which helped the disadvantaged. 68% of Jonestown residents were black. Jones decided that he would permanently move to Jonestown in 1977, the same night that an employee of the New West magazine read for him the article that Kilduff was set to be published. Okay. Oh, yeah. He knew what was up. Writing was on was the up. wall. Yep. yep. But there was a moment when he woke up in Guyana, totally hung over on drugs, and was like, where the fuck am I at? <laughs> <laughs> the one eye opens yeah. first, and you're like, where the fuck am I? It's hot. <laughs> yeah. Many members of the temple believed that Guyana would be, as Jones promised, a paradise or utopia. After Jones arrived, however, Jonestown life significantly changed. Entertaining movies from Georgetown that settlers had watched were mostly canceled in favor of Soviet propaganda shorts and documentaries on American social problems. Bureaucratic requirements after Jones's arrival sapped labor resources for other needs. Buildings fell into disrepair and weeds grew out of control in fields. School study and nighttime lectures for adults turned to Jones's discussions about revolution and enemies, with lessons focusing on Soviet alliances, Jones's crisis, and the purported mercenaries sent by Tim Stowen, who had defected from the temple and turned against the group. Hmm. 
For the first several months, Temple members worked six days a week from approximately 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sounds like paradise. Yeah, absolutely. Utopia. Mm -hmm. 12-hour workday. With an hour for lunch. You got your lunch hour. Hey, Rome didn't build itself in a day. (laughs) Rice and beans with a side of diarrhea. In mid-1978, after Jones' health deteriorated and his wife began to manage more of Jonestown's operations, the work week was reduced to eight hours a day for five days a week. After the day's work ended, Temple members would attend several hours of activities in a pavilion, including classes and socialism. Jones compared this schedule to the North Korean style of eight hours daily work followed by eight hours of study. This also comported with the Temple's practice of gradually subjecting its followers to sophisticated mind control and behavior modification techniques borrowed from North Korea and Mao Zedong's China. Recordings of commune meetings show how livid and frustrated Jones would get when anyone did not find the films interesting or did not understand the message Jones was placing upon them. Nothing in the way of film or recorded TV, no matter how innocuous or seem politically neutral, could be viewed without a Temple staff member present to interpret the material for the viewers. Mm. Imagine watching Soviet propaganda movies all day. Watching any propaganda movies all day. God, God almighty. Geez, Especially dude. after working eight hours, literally yeah. doing like manual labor. They're like, oh, I want to watch I... Three's Company. What the fuck is this thing, man? <laughs> I can't wait to get off of work, drink a beer, and watch some propaganda. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but there won't be any beer for you. Fuck! He said, I'm going to drink your beer, bone your wife, and then you're watching that because it's propaganda and how small your dick is. After the mass migration, Jonestown became overcrowded. Jonestown's population was right around 900 at its peak in 1978. So who were the people that made the move to Jonestown and made up the People's Temple? LeVar Burton and uh, Cousin James Eddie, Earl right? Jones, yeah. No, James didn't go. Oh. He was the preacher oh, yeah, at the other right. church. 45% of Jonestown residents were black women. 23% were black males. 13% were white females. 11% were white males. 3% were mixed females, with 1% being mixed males. There were also a few Asian people there as well, 15 in total that made up 2%. Just like we talked about, 68% of the members of Jonestown were African Americans, and for a year, the commune was run primarily through social security checks received by them. Mm. Up to $65,000 in monthly welfare payments from the U.S. government agencies to Jonestown residents were signed over to the temple. In 1978, officials from the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown interviewed social security recipients on multiple occasions to make sure they were not being held against their will. None of the 75 people interviewed by the embassy stated that they were being held captive, were forced to sign over welfare checks, or wanted to leave Jonestown. So was this like, was Jonestown a bunch of like septuagenarians, like a bunch of old people then? Or was it like they were all getting disability? You know, they were older, but they were all, I guess, getting just social security benefits. Okay. Again, I don't don't know the whole breakdown I'm just thinking I want to build a database of people on disability and be like, I'm building a utopia. Come with me. <laughs> 65 grand a month in 1975 or whatever it was. In, in Guyana? Yeah. Balling. Jeez. Yeah. As mentioned before, Jones was a master of manipulation. The temple sometimes conducted what Jones referred to as white knights. During such events, Jones would sometimes give the Jonestown members four options. Attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown and fight the purported attackers, or flee into the jungle. 
No, they describe this place as a utopia, but I have a hard time buying that given the options laid out there. Mm-hmm. That's how they actually start off the movie, and it's like, I mean, they come out the gates roaring yeah. with it, and they, they're starting off with one of these white alerts. Mm-hmm. The movie starts, it's like a siren's going off. Yep. Jim Jones is on the speaker, and he's like, run up, come and drink it. We've got the people out in the woods. They're coming to kill us. Drink the Kool-Aid, yeah. basically, and... Like, and people are running up to do it. And then, like, they even, like, in the movie, they were showing people getting shot. Not really. They were running a test. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is, you know, and yeah, everybody's, like, running up and doing it. Well, and that's the thing, because I read a bunch of times, too, that it was, and this is actually a tactic that ISIS used on people, was they would do, like, mock executions where they drag them out, and they would be like, we're going to kill you. And you do it so often that people become complacent to it. And they just get tired of it, so they don't ever suspect that it really is going to break down at one point and happen. And happen. Yeah. Right. But I'm like, for me, of those four choices, I'm like, I'm going choice D. Yeah, I'm fleeing. <laughs> I'm getting the hell out of here. Preferably with Credence Clearwater playing on the loudspeakers behind me. <laughs> <laughs> Better run through the jungle. On at least two occasions during White Nights, after a revolutionary suicide vote was reached and a simulated mass suicide was rehearsed, Temple defector Deborah Layton described the event in an affidavit. She said, everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came and we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and we had just been through a loyalty test. I was just bullshit with y'all, man. (laughs) Y'all passed. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. The temple received monthly half-pound shipments of cyanide since 1976 after Jones obtained a jeweler's license to buy the chemical purportedly to clean gold. In May of 78, a temple doctor wrote a memo to Jones asking permission to test cyanide on Jonestown's pigs as their metabolism was close to that of human beings. Yeah. I test so much gold, I got cyanide poisoning. <laughs> cyanide poisoning. Is it all right, everybody? Line up, because it's barbecue night. All the pigs have been slaughtered. Why? <laughs> Don't worry about that, guys. Just enjoy your barbecue and your Kool-Aid. Don't ask too many questions. <laughs> Jones's health significantly declined in Jonestown. By 1978, Jones was informed of a possible lung infection, upon which he announced to his followers that he, in fact, had lung cancer, a ploy to foster sympathy and strengthen the support within the community. Jones was said to be abusing injectable Valium, Quaaludes, stimulants, and barbiturates. Audio tapes of 1978 meetings within Jonestown attest to Jones's declining physical condition, with the commune leader complaining of high blood pressure, small strokes, weight loss of 21 to 30 pounds in the last two weeks, Mm -hmm. temporary blindness, convulsions, and in early November 1978, while he was ill in his cabin, grotesque swelling of the extremities. Yeah. Oh, wow. And a compulsion to make rockin' ass music. It's I'm on those quaaludes all day, baby. I got my Casio keyboard. Him and David Koresh are jamming out <laughs> in the band. I'm having strokes, and I'm playing rock music for your ass. We'll call my band The Strokes. <laughs> <laughs> Jones often mentioned chronic insomnia. He would say that he went three to four days without any rest. During meetings and public addresses, his once sharp speaking voice often sounded slurred. Words ran together or were tripped over. Jones would occasionally not finish sentences even when reading typed reports of the commune's PA system. So he was either getting extremely faded yeah. and his health was failing. I'm probably a little both. both. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, everybody get your cups and 
I forgot what I was going to say. Don't even worry about it. Just go back to your cabins or whatever, man. In the autumn of 1977, that same guy we just referenced, Tim Stowen, and others who had left the temple formed a concerned relatives group because they had heard family members in Jonestown had some issues. There were rumors of the aforementioned abuse, both sexual and mental, and could be possibly being kept at Jonestown against their will. Stowen traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1978 to visit with the State Department officials and members of Congress, and he wrote a white paper detailing his grievances against Jones and the temple. His efforts aroused the curiosity of California Congressman Leo Ryan, who wrote a letter on Stowen's behalf to Guyanese Prime Minister Forbes Burnham. A Democrat, Ryan was an unconventional politician. He once had himself briefly incarcerated at Folsom State Prison to see what the prison conditions were like, and he went to Canada to investigate the hunting of baby seals. He was actually there when Johnny Cash recorded. Oh, really? No, not at all. Oh, okay, but that would be pretty sweet. That's actually why he did it. He just wanted to take us to Johnny Cash. <laughs> he wrote a letter to Jim Jones requesting an invitation to visit the settlement, a move that Jones and his followers vehemently opposed, but to which they later acquiesced and agreed to the meeting. In November of 78, Ryan led a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate the alleged human rights abuses. His delegation included relatives of Temple members, an NBC camera crew, and reporters from various newspapers. The group arrived in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown on November 15th. Two days later, they traveled by airplane to Port Ketuma. There, they were transported to the Jonestown encampment in a limousine. Jones hosted a reception for the delegation that evening at the Central Pavilion in Jonestown. He said, I was mistaken. This is NBC. I thought this was ABC's Wide World of Sports. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the next day, November 18th, 1978, will be a day that lives in infamy. In the morning, Leo Ryan and his group toured the land and tried to get a general sense of what was going on. In the early afternoon, a Jonestown member named Don Sly tried to attack Ryan with a knife. The attack was unsuccessful as multiple people were able to disarm Sly before he could get to the congressman. It was at this point that Ryan and his gang knew they needed to get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. As they were preparing to leave, Jones spoke with one of the parties about what Congress Ryan would report back. He was advised that while there were some issues he was concerned about, Ryan would give a generally positive report. Jones didn't like or believe what he heard. Congressman Ryan and the group wound up having about 15 Temple members with them that wanted to leave. They contacted the U.S. Embassy in Guyana and were advised they needed a second plane to make their way out of there. They were taken to the airstrip in Port Ketuma, where they originally flew in. While waiting on the second plane to arrive so they could board, a tractor with a utility trailer behind it arrived, carrying members of the temple's Red Brigade. The Red Brigade were the armed security guards that protected the borders of Jonestown. The gunman opened fire and killed Ryan and four others near a Guyana Airways Twin Otter aircraft. You could see the tape of all this they've got it on video yeah. yep in the movie they showed the nbc guy getting down with the camera yeah. and just getting blown away yeah. you know yeah. howard cosell here <laughs> things are going sideways at the same time one of the supposed defectors larry layton drew a weapon and began firing on members of the party who had already boarded the small cessna so this guy had infiltrated and yeah. lied and said i want to go with you but he packed some heat and wound up being part of the shooting as well an embassy cameraman was able to capture footage of the first few seconds of the shooting at the Otter. The five killed at the airstrip were Ryan, NBC reporter Don Harris, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, San Francisco examiner photographer Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia Parks. Surviving the attack were future Congresswoman Jackie Spire, who was then a staff member for Ryan, Richard Dwyer, a deputy chief of mission from the U.S. Embassy at Georgetown, 
Bob Flick, a producer for NBC, Steve Sung, an NBC sound engineer, Tim Reiterman, a San Francisco Examiner reporter, Ron Javes, a San Francisco Chronicle reporter, and Charles Krauss, a Washington Post reporter, along with several defecting Temple members. Word made its way back to Jonestown when the Red Brigade returned and whispered, the congressman is dead, and the rumors swirled around the village. Jones then decided that it was time to take action and put those practice white night runs into reality. The FBI recovered a 45-minute audio recording of the suicide in progress. That shit's chilling. Yeah, yeah it, is. it is. On that tape, Jones tells Temple members that the Soviet Union, with whom the Temple had been negotiating a potential exodus for months, would not take them after the airstrip murders. The reason given by Jones to commit suicide was consistent with his previously stated conspiracy theories of intelligence organizations allegedly conspiring against the temple that men would parachute in here on us, shoot some of our innocent babies, and they'll torture our children, and they'll torture some of our people here. They're going to torture our senior citizens. Jones's prior statements that hostile forces would convert captured children to fascism would lead many members who held strong opposing views to fascism to view the suicide as valid. He said several times throughout it, we're not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. Yeah. That's a t-shirt, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Yep. With that reasoning, Jones and several members argued that the group should commit revolutionary suicide by drinking cyanide-laced, grape-flavored Flavor-Aid. So it wasn't Kool-Aid. It's Flavor-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. Flavor-Aid. Yeah. Actually, interesting fact, I found out that Kool-Aid's actually owned by the Kraft Corporation. Kraft owns pretty much everything. Yeah, yeah. huge. But yeah, it's like the knockoff version. Yeah, it was the, the best thing stuff. that ever happened to them, too. That was all like, they could get in Guyana. They couldn't yeah. get the name brand. You know. Yeah, Kool Aid was like shit. <laughs> yeah, don't lump oh, me in yeah. with this guy. <laughs> Kool Aid guy's like revolutionary suicide. Oh, How are we yeah. gonna get all of our attention off of this? I don't know. Let's create the Kool Aid man. <laughs> Later released Temple films show Jones opening a storage container full of Kool Aid in large quantities. And again, however, the empty packets of grape flavor aid were found on the scene that showed this was what was used to mix the solution, along with multiple sedatives, including the cyanide. So it should be don't drink the flavor aid. That doesn't go as well. Yeah, though. exactly. That's like being like, oh, yeah, something about diet right. You know? <laughs> when members apparently cried, Jones counseled, stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialists or communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. In the movie, they showed a little boy walking up to him being like, do I have to die? And he was like, yep, it's time. <laughs> it's and the little kid goes in and gives him a big hug and then God. you know drinks the Kool-Aid right afterwards. Jones could be heard saying, don't be afraid to die. That death is just stepping over into another plane and that it's a friend. At the end of the tape, Jones concludes, we didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. According to escaping Temple members, children were given the drink first by their own parents. Ugh. Families were told to lie down together. Following the mass murder-suicide, Jones was found dead on the floor. He was resting his head on a pillow near his deck chair with a gunshot wound to his head, which Guyanese coroner Cyril Mutu said was consistent with suicide. So wait, he didn't drink the Kool-Aid himself? Nope. No. What a bitch! Yeah. What a bitch! Yeah, he did uh, shots, 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 shots. <laughs> Shot time! You know, but that's fucked up. Everybody else is going to die over 45 minutes, yeah. and he's going to do it in 4.5 seconds. Well, I Not don't think even. he was really particularly worried about his social standing at yeah. that point. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I want to seem fair, guys, but to be I don't really give a shit. 
His body was later dragged outside for examination and embalming. The official autopsy conducted in 1978 also confirms his death as a suicide. An autopsy of Jones's body also showed levels of the barbiturate pentobarbital, which may have been lethal to humans who had not developed a psychological tolerance, but it sounds like he was banging that Massive, shit. Yeah. 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 God, can you imagine if you were the autopsy guy, the doctor that does it, and you're just like, you know what, fuck this guy. It sucks, but a lot of the people that were the first responders to Jonestown had extreme oh, like, PTSD. Oh, yeah, you're seeing course, a massive... Yeah. Yeah. And here's the deal, too, it's in Guyana. It's it's insanely hot there, so decomp happens really oh, quick. But I, I was, you know, it's like when you're doing the report, the autopsy on Jim Jones, you're like, all right, so gunshot wound to the head, uh, micro penis, flabby balls. Herpes <laughs> on yeah, the genitalia. Yeah, everything you can do to just embarrass that guy at his last document, you know what I mean? A sign could be seen hanging above Jones's deck chair. Jones had borrowed a quote from George Santayana. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 909 inhabitants of Jonestown, 304 of them children, died in the apparent cyanide poisoning, mostly in and around the settlement's main pavilion. This resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life, murder, and suicide, though not on American soil, in a deliberate attack until the September 11th attacks. That's right. And also the whole like doomed to repeat it thing. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, he was That's talking sophomoric bullshit, man. While he was doing that speech at yeah. the end, he kept on being like, "Go like the people of Greece before you and drink the drink yeah, and cross over." It's you all know, nonsense. It's just stupid, dude. It's like <laughs> whatever. It may as well just put like live, laugh, love, and then it would have been about as meaningful. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right, boys. That is Jim Jones. Okay. All right. Let's get final scores going for this ass wipe. All right. So I started him off with a nine. I feel very confident in that nine. The only reason that I don't bump him up to a 10 is because aside from the downward spiral of horror that he became, and even I don't know how sincere he was about his positions throughout the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, he did get a lot done. So that is going to keep him from going to a full 10, but I will bump him up to a 9.5 because just the abuse that he was doing to these people, besides just the suicide itself, the, the massacre, the frequent abuse and stuff like that was, was just prevalent. So it's going to bump score up by 0.5 points. Absolutely. Awesome. I too am bumping my score on uh, old Jimmy Jones. I didn't know a lot about the homosexuality stuff that they talked about. And then he tried to mask it and kind of tell everybody else that they were gay. Yeah. You that's know, the just, mental gymnastics. That, I've never heard it. That's exactly yeah, absolutely. right. And then you talk about obviously just the insane, insane fucking brainwashing and manipulation he did to hundreds of people yeah. and wound up taking their lives. So old Jimbo's going to a 9.0 for me, my final score. All right. So for me, you know, I didn't know a lot about him off of the rip and I, I scored him pretty high, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm actually going to have to bump it up a little bit more as well because yeah, I mean like he took over 500 people from San Francisco down mm -hmm. to Latin America or South mm -hmm. America mm -hmm. with the promise of this new utopian society. And he was just a piece of shit the entire time. Yeah. He was basically changing the rules to fit whatever his agenda was. Mm -hmm. And there was no like bigger motive. It was just like, kind of like support me, support me. Mm -hmm. You know, I do give him credit for the way that he tackled racism back in the 50s. I mean, it took a big pair of cojones to do some of the stuff that he did back sure. then. 
but then to turn around and use those same tactics for manipulation on his part to convince people to go with him and everything. I just, I don't like it. And then with the mass suicide at the end, over 300 kids as the well. The kids is really the, yeah. yeah. You know, they don't I, have a choice. And from what I'm to understand, even people that resisted, they would hold them down and That's then, right. you know, shoot them, inject them, inject them. Yeah. You know, so, you know, fuck this guy. I started off with an 8.0 on him. I'm bumping him up to a 9.5. So, with a 9.0 from Randy, a 9.5 from Mikey, and a 9.5 from Buddy, Jim Jones' final asshole score is a 9.3 repeating. Okay. Sounds like that shoe fits, for yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. He has the highest body count of any that we've done so yeah. far. Maybe Duterte. Duterte might have him beat, yeah, but, but that's, we're we never going to get sure. accurate numbers on yeah, that. That's exactly right. All right, thanks for listening, and we hope you guys enjoy the show. If you like what we do, tell people you know to tune in as well. Your support, as you know, is always appreciated. You know where to find us on all your favorite podcast platforms, at AHC Podcast. Tune in next week for our next edition of our Fireside Chats. Stay safe out there, show each other some love, and we hope you learned something and got a few laughs out of today's show. Until next time, this is Asshole Court. Asshole Court.